Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Zoe Helena. She is founder at Cosmic Sister. We're going to talk to her about a bunch of things, obviously about what she's doing in her involvement in cannabis, but more broadly, the work she's doing as an artist, as an environmentalist, as an activist, uh, and kind of using cannabis or cannabis as kind of the context of sacred plant and how that fits into the work she's doing and the impact that she is having on the world in general, but obviously the world of cannabis and the development of the cannabis industry. One of the things I love about the space of cannabis is there's so many facets and people with different visions and perspectives and sort of uses of cannabis and and the cannabis industry that I love having these conversations. And Zoe is doing some really interesting work and I'm I'm excited for this. She's got some interesting ideas and I'm going to enjoy having this conversation and talking with her about the work that she's doing. With that, Zoe, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you on. So before we sort of dig into everything you're doing right now with cannabis, sacred plants, and looking kind of at the world and culture and society, give us a little background. How did you get into this space? What was the journey that you've been on? Tell us a little bit of the story. 
Hmm. Well, it's always hard to know where to, how far to go back. But I, I did have an unusual upbringing. I was born into a family of artists and scientists who, my father was a founding faculty of the North Carolina School of the Arts, which is a very fine performing arts conservatory, which actually he was starting to get the funding for the year I was born in. But he was, he was one of three men who founded it. And it opened in, like, I was two years old. So one of my earliest memories of my dad, or earliest memories, period, is seeing my dad up on the stage in the first production of The Nutcracker, which they still do every year, as Drosselmeyer. So I remember that very clearly. And and that was an unusual place to be brought up because it was also right smack in the middle of the 60s. That would have been 66. I would have been two. And so I remember the counterculture revolution, which included a lot of psychedelics, in an extraordinary, like a a special community. It was in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, but it was all part of this, you know, it was a campus that people lived on, so you could kind of go into the campus, and everybody was there, and it was was kind of a lot like the movie Hair or Fame, if you remember that, like the dancing at the beginning of Hair. Um, There were people from all over the world. There was, I mean, I talk a lot about diversity in my work. I grew up around diversity and I grew up around people who were totally out as well. Like in terms of gender fluidity, you didn't call it gender fluidity back then, but people were whatever they were. And that was cool and great. And it was loving and you, you know, you, you could be whoever you were. And, you know, they, they just saw me as an artist because that was a skill that I happened, well, a talent, I suppose I happened into when I was born visual art. And it was, I was unusually good at it. So I learned very early that if I was to draw in front of some of these people, they would immediately be interested in me, the the adults, like the Mm -hmm. other master artists. And so I've come to learn now as an adult that when they saw me and said artist, really what they were seeing was this person who had a way of kind of going between the worlds. You know, yeah. I was I was already in and out of the worlds naturally, and so whatever I would draw or paint or sculpt, it came out of that world. The other thing was, we lived in the middle of a forest, and it was a beautiful beechwood forest with a lake and creeks, and for whatever reason, my mom and dad decided that they would trust me. They taught uh-huh. me rules of the forest, you know, what to look for, what to watch out for. And then they just let me go. And I think about that, and I've known other people who have told me the same thing. I think we are really blessed to spend time, that much time in the forest. And then in 1974, we left for New Zealand. And that is when people did not know, most people did not know where New Zealand was. Uh, So (laughs) it was pretty funny. So we would try to explain to them where it was. And just picking up and leaving like that was really unusual. So we landed in New Zealand, had another whole entire lifestyle, very, very different culture, even though they speak English. It's quite British. My oh. And then we ended up again in the middle of the forest, but this time it was primary rainforest, yeah. which factors into my work also today with ayahuasca because you work with that in the middle of the jungle. Yeah. So I think there was always art, there was always environmentalism, there was always science also, because my father taught science to these gifted performing artists. Mm -hmm. So just that combination is unusual already. And as I went through my life, you know, I found myself, I I got an MFA in theater, I did theater for a long time, but I also was a designer because that made more money. Mm -hmm. So I would go back and forth. and, And I loved the theater because it was a collaboration you know it was like all the pieces came together you always worked with other people and they were exciting and talented and you were a tribe for a time and then you moved on to another one and you did another show and that was um, a great deal of my life 
And that kind of led me to today that the cannabis story, though, is I first experienced cannabis when I was 21. Mm -hmm. And it was in undergrad school. I was a theater major in the 80s, right smack in the middle of the Reagan Just Say No era. Oh, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I remember that era. Just the, the, uh, whatever, the the eggs on me. Yeah, Yeah. it was the eggs on the frying pan. That's what I remember. (laughs) But I also remember my dad had this propaganda, too, where he, he had seen some of his students, you know, fall apart or fall, you know, basically drop out. And he would say that was because of all the drugs. Now, my dad would never touch anything. He's still alive. He's 93. And he's a remarkable man. But he never has touched a drug in his life. And I don't even like the word drug. Okay. But back then, that's what he called them. You know, all these wonderful, talented kids that, you know, were lost on drugs. And there was this idea in the 60s where you could have a bad trip that then would come back to you Mm -hmm. sometime, you know, which just really doesn't exist You know, it's like Chris talks to me about that. Have you ever actually met anybody who has a flashback? And I Mm. I haven't. I think it was just an idea somebody had. So years and years later, I end up with my college sweetheart, who was a little older than I was because I'd been out of school a long time. I was just a little bit too mature for the boys in school at that time. He was just five years older, but, you know, I was Mm -hmm. only 21. And he was a good full-on stoner, okay? Best weed he could find. And (laughs) North Carolina is illegal, you know, to smoke weed still, which is ridiculous because they have some great weed. And I can tell you, since this is a cannabis podcast, the weed in North Carolina is across all the different subcultures. You get the total preppy types and you get the full on good old boys and they are all smoking weed. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know why they're not legal yet, but I digress. So well. <laughs> I, was, I was there with him, and I just wasn't going to touch it. And I wasn't going to touch it for a few reasons, mostly because I was still, you know, young, and you still begin to kind of go through, sift through all the conditioning or programming or just, just the good ideas your parents gave you when they brought you up. A lot of them were good. And I just kind of started thinking, you know, all my friends smoke weed. And they're great. These are the people I choose to hang with. The other ones are just drinking alcohol all the time, and that bores me. So I I started to think, is this something that I'm, am I stuck with some sort of idea that isn't actually Mm. the real world? And Challenging, yeah. I finally said yes on a beautiful day. And I've told this story before, but basically what happened is he was a good full-on stoner that worked with bongs most of the time. Pretty much bong in the morning, bong all day, bong at night, right? So I'd watched him do this for a year. We'd lived together at least a year. And I I did what he did. Uh (laughs) And I had a full-on psychedelic trip, like the full thing. Now, I didn't realize for many years that that's what I had. Mm -hmm. In fact, for a long time in my early 40s, I would talk about ayahuasca being my first psychedelic. And then finally, I realized, why am I saying that? Oh, interesting. Yeah, Yeah, cannabis was totally a full, I mean, the whole thing, not just the visuals, but lots of visuals, but also a real healing experience. Yeah. So I I basically, which was right for me at the time, which is what I needed at the, it was very blissful and beautiful and, and so, and liberating and. And oddly enough, I didn't know anything about yoga. I knew it existed, but I hadn't been around it. Dance, sure. All kinds of other things with acting, but not yoga. And I saw the chakras, or I experienced the chakras in my body. 
very beautifully, visually and everything else. It was all of the above, right? And I'd never seen them before. I'd never seen a picture of them. I'd, I mean, I didn't see the symbols, but I, I felt them in my body. I saw the colors of the rainbow all running mm-hmm. through my nervous system. So I think about that. And oh, and by the way, I didn't stop after that. I thought, okay, this is something. Uh-huh. So that was the beginning for me. It was definitely the gateway drug, as they like to say. But we don't, again, I don't like the word drug. Yeah. So I, I prefer the yeah, word medicine yeah. or sacred medicines or even just sacred psychedelic plants and fungi. Yeah. Do you feel like your your kind of creative background and, you know, ha- having a fairly developed kind of creative sensibility and openness and, you know, obviously the kind of the, the context and the culture that you were raised in allowed you to access that more? Or how do you think those sort of played together between the plant and kind of your, you know, mindset, uh, you know, thinking, perspective, cultural norms at the time? You mean the first one, the cannabis one? Yeah. Nobody's ever asked me that. But yes, I think absolutely. I think I was already an explorer. I was always very interested in learning and being the best person I could be really facing things that were keeping me back improving all of that. I was also a very dedicated student. And one of the reasons I didn't smoke weed is because I was afraid of losing my scholarship because it was illegal. That, That continued all the way through grad school, by the way. So yes, I think that being an artist, and also being an actor, I was very interested in myself, not just my body, but my full self, my body, mind, spirit, if you will, um, as a tool, as a channel for these ideas to come through and to express in whatever medium I was working in. Yes, it's very different to to draw something or paint something than it is to act. You know, when you're acting, you're, you're in general working with somebody else's script. So with someone else's words, you're bringing a story to life, you're, you're embodying a character and allowing that character to come through you, which is quite a complicated craft. It's a, it's a yeah. difficult craft. It's an elusive craft. That's why there are not so many great actors out there. It's hard. Right. So I think that those things were all about learning who I was and expressing what I was. And also, I think because people saw me as an artist when I was quite young, I mean, I was I got my first paycheck at two. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They wasn't a paycheck. It was cash. (laughs) (laughs) But it it was like, yeah, I'll take it. Um, It gave me an idea of what the world could be through this, you know, like, okay, I must be pretty good if somebody recognized me. But I think that, let's see, it's such a good question. I think that the answer is yes. And also because it was the counterculture revolution as a child. So it was also all about breaking free from the old ways, which really did seem old to me. Like, for instance, my mother was totally a feminist. We were in feminist marches. And my mom and dad led encounter groups. You ever heard of those? No. No, you know, I, mean, I, I can't believe there hasn't been a movie called Encounter because <laughs> it was a big deal in the 70s. And they're a bit, well, I mean, they were all about sexual revolution. Okay. Sure. Because these people were dealing with, my parents' generation were dealing with the r- super strict, strange 50s sexuality. Yeah. And not everybody in the, 50s wasn't enjoying sex, but there was this idea that women couldn't enjoy sex and men sure. could sleep around and whatever. So there were also all these marriages sure. that had been formed because people thought they were supposed to get married. Yeah, you exactly. know, they were doing everything they were supposed to do. So encounter groups in part were bringing couples in. There would be like four couples, sometimes five couples. And oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And my mom and dad were leading these groups and they'd talk with each other about their relationships and go through all these things together. 
And, you know, we were kids and it was an open kind of a house. And so we snuck around and listened sometimes. <laughs> Picked up on what was taking place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I was like, wow, that's so cool. Okay, so so basically what the adults are doing is they're, they're kind of liberating themselves. They're breaking free from these ideas that they were taught that were in their heads. And they made all these life decisions around. And now they're unhappy and they don't know what to do. And, you know, half of the people in these encounter groups got divorced and the Mm -hmm. other ones had a marvelous relationships with each other from there on in and the ones that did get divorced they went on to great relationships yeah they just weren't with the right person they were very friendly they were friends but they weren't like you know so i think that gave me a good basis as well for my own work but then the 80s hit and the 80s were all it was a backlash era yeah exactly you know kind of the pendulum swinging back to yes and a a lot of the young people especially women i speak to a lot of young feminists don't know about the 90s feminism, the early 90s was a great phase for feminism because mm-hmm. we were just coming out of the 80s. We didn't go away. Feminists didn't go away, but it was a bad word in the 80s. Yeah. You know, it was really a bad, like, mm, you were looked down on if you talked about it, which I thought was just so sad and awful. But there was a book called The Backlash, which I highly recommend for anybody. It's still almost entirely relevant. There are a few things that are specific to TV shows at the time. Got it. But you could take those same notes from the author and look at TV programs today and make your own comparisons. But I think it was, it's a very important term and it's a brilliant book. And I think we have to be careful today that we don't fall into another backlash era because we have this fabulous tsunami happening yeah. with psychedelics. And it concerns me a little bit. You know, that, so, mean, meaning that if, if we get too far out, there'll be a push to swing back. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Also, because people aren't behaving. And, it, you know, you can't look at the genies out of the bag, right? And it by nature is all about creativity and being who yeah. the hell you are. But people ask me a lot, for instance, about how can somebody, you know, we just mentioned we're, you know, we're free of Trump for the moment. But yeah. <laughs> I, I was asked a lot about how can you be a Trump supporter and be not just a psychedelic person, but really working with medicines a lot. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it and thought about it. And here's what I have to say. You can be a sexual predator. And be working with medicines. Yeah. So why not be a Trump supporter and being with? So what happens with our minds? I think is that we're able to compartmentalize. And you could take like let's say a guy who has had a difficult upbringing, but is pretty much a good guy, uh-huh. has been very successful, is an older guy, chases young women constantly, needs them around no matter what, puts them in awkward positions. Basically a sexual predator, because that's what yep. that is, okay? Yep. And they're usually way, way, way younger. And as the man gets older and older and older, the women don't, right? The women yep. he's after. just So this gap gets worse. Now, he doesn't see it as, as sexism. Mm-hmm. He just sees it in his own, if he sees it at all, if he even thinks about it. It's usually a status symbol. Like this is an old masculine idea, yeah. right? It's an old idea from the old days, but it's still there. Just the young men aren't older yet. See, we don't know if the young men today have changed until they get older. Until, yeah, until the situation has changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're 24 years old. You're dating someone 24, right? Yeah. But what happens when you're 40 now? You're still dating someone 24, you know? Yeah. So these guys, a lot of them are in the psychedelic scene and they have worked on really important things. They've, they've worked through addictions. They've worked through self-esteem issues. They've worked through all sorts of really difficult wounds from the patriarchy. And yet they haven't dealt with that one. 
They yeah. have avoided it. Well, and why do you think that is? Is it because of where it sort of sits in the hierarchy or how it, it's part of their identity or ego or what's it's part of their identity? It's part of their yeah. identity and it's deep and yeah. it corresponds beautifully with one that women have, which is that our value is number one, this idea of what we look like. Okay. Which yeah. is also dictated by the patriarchy. And I like to say late stage patriarchy, because I really think that's what we're in kind of like late stage capitalism, where at the end of a patriarchy where it's been around so long that it's, it's become cannibalistic, right? Yeah, yeah. So when you look at women, okay, if I bring a woman down to the Amazon to work with ayahuasca on an eating disorder, or if they're working in cannabis circles, because cannabis can be a very powerful mm-hmm. plant for that kind of work. And a lot of women sure. are doing work like that. If you work on the, let's say, anorexia, bulimia, or whatever it is, or the opposite, overeating to the point where you are purposefully not wanting to be, quote, attractive, unquote. And, you know, all this goes down to these ideals that are shoved upon us very, very young that are kind of arbitrary and definitely about there's a racism quality to them as well, because sure. there's this cookie cutter idea of what you can and cannot look like. And, you know, this idea of what is all American is like, says who? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I grew up with that. An all American girl was a little blonde, blue eyed, and sometimes freckles, you know, girl, light skinned. And yet the Native American people, the indigenous people to Turtle Island are not that at all. And they're much more American. That's that's the American girl, right? So, I I knew all that. I knew that. I understood it, but it still got to me. I still, you know, I came, I had an eating disorder in the early 90s. When I was acting, I knew that I had everything. I had the talent, I had the training, I had everything. I was ready to go, but I knew that if I didn't drop 10 more pounds and I was already thin, I would not get cast in the roles I wanted. And so, I did what I needed to do to to, to drop those 10 pounds, and it was to starve myself, okay? So, I've been there, but when I bring women who are in much worse positions than I was ever in, like they're in life-threatening positions with their eating disorders. Eating disorders kill people. Mm-hmm. The numbers are terrible. I hope people will look them up because if you don't know, they're staggering and terrible, okay? The problem is if they work on, they get something, they get some serious paradigm shifts about their eating disorder and they're ready to eat and they can eat again, that's also happened. After working with these, I mean, I'm vegetarian, so I'm not going to want that. But, you know, dig into a big hamburger after you haven't been able to eat for five years. That's intense, right? Yeah, that's a shock to the system. Yeah, Yeah, but then they go back home and the world hasn't changed. Yeah. And the men haven't changed. I mean, that's assuming they're heterosexual, right? But the men haven't changed. So, therefore, they're still going to be looked at as attractive only if they're thin because the males have also been programmed to think that's the only thing that's attractive. Sure. So, until both parties come to the table on this programming and this, you know, this um, extremely destructive ideal that permeates our culture, then no no one's going to get better. Neither side is going to get better. It's going to continue yeah. and continue. So, I think with males, it's similar in that men are taught a lot of times that women are just another item to have on to your collect. arm or yeah. whatever. Yeah, like you have your great car, you know, what do you drive? Right? What do you earn? Yep. And w- how young and how beautiful is your woman? Mm-hmm. You know, and unfortunately, Tro- trophy wife. yeah, totally, yeah. totally, yeah. or trophy girlfriend or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they may not even see it as that. They might say, oh, I love her very much. But, you know, that is not the drive. Is A woman is not an accessory. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I think that. In the 60s, it was all about, you know, a woman on a pedestal, right? Like a pedestal is a type of a cage. 
Well, mm, yeah. being viewed as an accessory is also very, it's abusive. Yeah, yeah. And it leads to the wrong kind of relationship. So when you go back to the example of an older man, because it doesn't necessarily have to be an older man, but an older man, I have one in mind. There's a man who has a lot of money and who's in the space who gives the money to women who he he thinks are really brilliant and, hey, often they are. Mm-hmm. But he insists that they flirt with him and who knows what else. Yeah. And that's sort of, I mean, it's, it's a hop, skip and a jump from Me Too. In fact, it really kind of is Me Too. It's a Me Too thing. Well, I'm, I'm curious because I think like on one hand, you know, cannabis, sort of the cannabis world is kind of this interesting opportunity because of its you know, a little bit of alternative culture and background and having been kind of associated with different ways of thinking and different norms and kind of paradigms, it is on one hand kind of a tool for being able to create more awareness and to, you know, hopefully change some of these, you know, patterns and situations that we're in sort of socially and culturally. You know, on the other hand, it's just as susceptible to patriarchy and, you know, kind of the power structure that exists in all other industries and kind of economics and capitalism in general. I mean, how (laughs) how do you see the balance between, you know, using cannabis as a space to explore and change some of these norms, but also a space that is susceptible to some of these norms? Well, first of all, we live in a patriarchy, okay, late stage patriarchy all over the world. And there are little pockets that are a little better here and there. But this this is something that's taken over the world. And it has been around for thousands of years in most cases. So when you have any kind of industry and you're starting, that's the starting point, then you can't expect to take like a slice of pie out of a larger piece of culture and it not represent that larger piece of culture. So if you're dealing with a sexist culture, then that little slice of the pie is going to have sexism too. Um, And so... You know, yes. And also there's this this idea of, you know, disparity in various ways. When you're talking about gender disparity and money, for example, the lion's share of the money is in general still in male hands. So yeah. sometimes you'll have men who will fund women, but they're still in charge. Yeah. See, until women it's are about able, power, not the it, not just the funds. It is, and and you know, it's very difficult because people don't want to give it up. I, I say to people sometimes, I have a fiscal sponsorship with Maps, and I really respect Rick Doblin, and I'm really grateful for that fiscal sponsorship. That doesn't mean they give me money. It means that you know somebody can donate to Cosmic Sister through that form and have it be tax deductible. But, you know, their board has has been predominantly male since the beginning of uh, the organization. And those are the men, in, you know, who've helped to build it and make it what it is. So they're yeah. not going to give up their seat at the table. And, and I don't think they should. You know, if yeah. those are Rick's buddies and they all did this together, then they shouldn't. So I say, okay, double the size of the table. Because yeah. you need, you can't just be all males right now, or mostly males. It, it's going to weaken you. Yeah, I'm curious, just as as a cis white male myself, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, as, you know, has a podcast in the space, you know, is you know knows about the people, you know. I mean, I guess what advice or what thinking would you give me, or, or things that you suggest that I kind of focus on, or mm. you know, and, and you know, as a as a kind of a, an example of of someone in the industry, what are some of the things we can do to help think of a new way, you know, b- build a kind of a new future around this? You know, I lead these talking circles and either cannabis infused or or other sacred plants when they're available and legal. Uh, but unfortunately, with the pandemic, I wasn't able to do those in person yeah. the way I had really planned this year. And they're not quite the same online. But when you do them in, in person, I first started out with all women, and then I opened it up to everybody. I call them full spectrum, right? I love it, yeah. And we talk about gender, and we talk yeah. specifically about things that have happened 
in your life that stick with you that weren't fun? You know, I, I ask a question. It's not even a, it's not really a question. It's really a, a, a meditation where I'll say, think of a time in your life when you were treated in a certain way that was not fun for you. It was a negative for no other reason than that you are a blank in a male dominated culture, male, female, whatever you feel. Yeah. That the only reason you were treated that way is because of your perceived gender. Okay. And it was something that it doesn't have to be a huge thing like a rape. It can be a small thing. Or, yeah. Because if you're still remembering it, you know, people are, God, I don't want to talk about that. That seems so petty. And I'm like, no, 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 that's the one. If that's the yeah. one coming up, let's talk about it. You'd be surprised what people bring up. And it sits inside them. And it's as fresh as ever in the right circumstance where they're being listened to. They're, you know, there's, there's a witness. There are witnesses. There's a safe community. Mm-hmm. You know, there, you know we, we set a sacred space and we, we agree to certain things. So people feel safe to share. And I think having Having the different genders speaking in front of each other about these things is really remarkable because all of a sudden you're hearing from the other side. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, oh, wow, look at that, you know. And I, I love it because it's it's a meditation. At the very end when you share, I say, how do you, you know, what is the feeling? What's the emotion you're feeling now? Because even though they've now seen me do that with everybody in the circle, people tend to forget because they're wrapped into the moment, which is good. This was yeah. supposed to happen. So sometimes, you know, I'll get an answer like rage or frustration or fatigue. I mean, it's fascinating what you get from that emotion. But that emotion is as if it happened yesterday. And often these are childhood or early uh, teens and sometimes they're later. And it's I'm blown away by what we hold. And for me, it's an example. It's just one example. And you can go and do this with your friends, with your own cannabis circles. But the idea for me is to take that. And use that memory that you have and that feeling and go into the medicine space with whatever medicine you work with, whether it's cannabis or or something else, and really go into that memory and and look at all sides of it, everything about it. Try to remember anything you can come up with of that memory. Where were you? Who were you with? What were you wearing? Who? How old were you? What was the bigger situation? How did it affect your life? How did it shift your life, your life path, you know, and and why do you think you still carry it, you know? And I think that people talk in the psychedelic scene a lot about intention. I think these are, this is a new method of evoking intentions specifically for working on these issues, which really amount to the negatives of being raised in a a late stage patriarchy. And it really is for everyone. Yeah. Do you think that cannabis and all sort of sacred plants in general, do they enhance the process, accelerate the process? Could we do this work without these? I'm kind of curious how you see Mm, the the mm. plant's role in the process. I think you can totally do this without. However, there are ways that we, just like we have these ways that we compartmentalize, we also have ways of tucking things away and not looking at them. Um, It's a little different from compartmentalize. It's similar. We have access to things that we don't normally have when we work with sacred plants. It helps us to see things that we're hiding from ourselves. There's a truth serum aspect to it. People are working with the brain science or finding all kinds of interesting things there. But just in terms of your experience, you can just get to things that you can't get to normally. I, I like to bring up denial because it's such a known thing. And people understand what denial is. It's a, the joke, you know, denial ain't a river in Egypt, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's true. But also by default, if you know you're in denial, you are not in denial. 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you can't say, oh, I'm in denial about that. Yeah, well, that's cute and funny, but actually you're not in denial. You're somewhere else. You're at a different phase. But if you're actually in denial over something and somebody brings it up to you, or if you're going to look at something in the space, and when I say the space, I mean the medicine space, working with some medicine. So the medicine is in you. You are in the medicine. You work on that then, and suddenly you can see things that you haven't been able to see about your own self Yeah, for the better. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious if you find that there are, is there pre-work on this? Is there kind of a context, mindset, place you need to get to before you can really start using this medicine or be, before it becomes you know, powerful? Or, or what is, like, what do you suggest for folks that are interested in exploring this, but, you know, maybe they haven't really done anything yet? What, what's the path that they should go down? Well, first of all, these medicines have been around for thousands and thousands of years. In fact, we really don't know how long. We just keep finding more that are older, you know, evidence of human use. So my heritage on my mother's side, we're working with psychedelic plants of various types for at least 4,000 years. Okay, so we are rediscovering some of the ancient traditions. But in fact, humans haven't changed that much. We're really the same. Human mm-hmm. condition is human condition. Yeah, maybe you have an iPhone, but you're still a human. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you know, there's love and there's loss and there's, you know, jealousy and there's all these things that humans are, right? Yeah. Ambition, whatever it is. The, the conflicts and the resolutions and the dynamics of relationships don't change. That's why the theater, the old theater from way in the Greek times, even though it's full of, you know, mythology and gods and goddesses and whatnot, they ultimately, you know, a fight between brothers to get a woman or whatever, those things don't change. Yeah. Okay? Medea is about a man who seduces a great woman who helps him have a wonderful life, and then he leaves her for a younger woman. I mean, yeah. it, these things haven't changed. So when we're working with, with in this movement today, or the psychedelic renaissance, or whatever you want to call it, this particular tsunami, we're rediscovering as much as we're also recreating our own version. So there's a lot of inventiveness going on. But there are some basics that I think we should, you know, all at least look at. You don't have, there's no rules, but set and setting still applies, you know, and that is a big, broad subject. I have, um, from my indigenous Greek heritage, found a name called Timino, which means sacred space. And Timinos, people mostly know, but that's not the first use of the word. The indigenous Greeks, which weren't even called Greeks, um, use the word Timino, and it means a space that is sacred, just like a maloka or a teepee or wherever it is you do your work, okay? Sure. So you say, this is the space. We're going to mark this space. A Timino is often outside in a gorgeous place in the outdoors. I love that. But it doesn't have to be. But it often is, like, on the, you know, a platea on the mountain, a little clearing in, in the woods, a beautiful meadow, somewhere beautiful in nature. You say, this is the space we're in, and in this space, we're going to agree to these things. We're going to be kind to each other. We're going to let someone else speak when it's their turn. We're going to really look at these things together, and we're, not, we're going to try not to judge each other. And whatever the rules are, no recording, that's a big one. <laughs> Everybody mm-hmm. wants to record everything today. Yeah. Oh. There's no privacy anymore, but I digress. Uh, so these, <laughs> but that, but it's that's an important statement though, because if you don't ask, there will be people who will record absolutely. you. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So you have to actually say, look, these are the what you're agreeing to. Explicit. You know, when you step in and you participate, these Explicit. are this is in my circle that I'm leading. This is what I ask of you, and then we're going to do this work together. So I think that's really important, and I I think people talk a lot about um, integration at the other end which is when you work on, well, how do you take these new things that you've discovered about yourself into your real life, your IRL, right? I love that. 
I think that's hilarious. So yeah, you're, you're IRL, you're in real life person. How do you take it back? And you know, that goes back to the circle that we talked about the anorexia, for example, how do you, how do you take that newfound you who's now eating and is healthy and understands that anorexia is this terrible cultural disease based on beauty standards that are abusive? How do you then go into your, you know, looking for love when the males have also been taught the same thing and are all looking for women who are anorexic and they don't believe that those women are anorexic? Yeah. They don't even believe it. They don't, I mean, most of them are, maybe some of them are naturally thin, but it's quite rare. Okay. So I think that, you know, there's so much going on with, with that, with that integration into your life. Okay. I think that there's a lot more to be done with the preparation, the before. So there's a before, a during and an after. And I think that the, this sort of evoking intentions are working on, you know, what do you want to work on? Yeah. Is a very powerful stage. Because it's in the, it's like at the top of your psyche. And by the way, psyche does not mean mind. Psyche is also a very, very old Greek word. And it means, the best definition I've come up with is, it's that which animates our bodies. I like that kind of life, life force kind of yes. idea. Isn't that cool? Yes, it's all of the above. It's spirit, it's mind, it's soul, it's heart. It's everything that embodies your body, you know, is in your body. You need a body for it to be embodied, if that makes sense. You can't have your psyche running around by itself. Well, maybe you can, but, you know, that's a different conversation. (laughs) Different podcast. Yeah, exactly. But when you look at psychedelics, right, psychedelics, like this idea of mind manifesting, that was a male patriarchal idea. Mm-hmm. of my heritage and a word that is much more interesting. When you look at it from the perspective of all of what animates our bodies, it's a much bigger picture, right? Yeah, I like that. And so what, do, what is the work that people do to have that preparation to get to be most open, ready to receive and experience, you know, what the plants can can do for us. You know, there's this concept of dieta in the ayahuasca community, at least with the Shipibo tribe in Uh the Peruvian Amazon, that most people think of it as you only eat a certain kind of things. Like, you know, Uh and and it varies, you know, let's face it, it totally varies between whatever healer you're working with or whatever century you're at. But, you know, generally no salt or no spices or whatever it is. Um, No pork, they all agree on that. So it's sort of this very, very simple diet, like actual what goes into your body. But then what goes into your psyche also matters. Yeah. So I will tell people or advise people, if you will, I recommend that you don't, for instance, look at really disturbing politics before <laughs> before yeah. you go into the maloka. In fact, if you can stand it to just wean yourself of that for a good month, it will be there when you come back. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. It's not going yeah. to it's, it's not going to escape yeah. while you're gone. Yeah. 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 It's not, you know, it's going to be okay without you for a month. And then also, you know, try not to get into arguments, try not to bring up things mm-hmm. that are really super uh charged. Yeah. Uh, try to really re- this is about internal work. You want to really look at yourself. So you want to get yourself in a position where your psyche, the things that your psyche wants to work on are bubbling right there at the surface inside right? Otherwise, what will happen, like, let's say you watch a really, we're watching a fun TV series called Fringe. Uh, it's it's from a little mm-hmm. while ago, but it's fabulous. We're really enjoying it. And a Fringe as in Fringe science, right? So it's science yeah. fiction, but it's a bit out there, but it's wonderful. And the wonderful mad scientist character, but it's also kind of gruesome and a bit scary at times because yeah. it's, you know, it's, and there's another one we were Grizzly. watching recently where the, you know, people are just awful. Like the human nature is just going to destroy itself no matter what you do. These are the lessons and the things 
themes of these shows, that's depressing. You go into the Maloka after, or the teepee, or the Timonol, whatever, after filling your brain with that, then that's what's going to come up for you. Yeah, yeah. It's it, your your whatever you ingest before and is still going to be in your system when you go through the process. Yeah, yeah. And I, that's another thing they talk about is no sex, which is interesting because it's also really hard, especially for younger people, to even fathom what no sex. <laughs> But, you know, the thing is that so many people are sexually abused in this culture. And I don't mean necessarily incest or rape even. I mean just just ideas, (laughs) just these double standards and whatnot, you know, performance anxiety, you know, you just the list goes on. The idea of just saying, hey, we can wait. We can just wait. We know we love each other, you know, so that you have this, you're not going into that experience that is part of the problem or part of what you're looking at and want to work on. That's just sort of way it's on the outskirts and you're going to work on it in the Maloka, but you're not going to actually do the deed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can tell you just as a woman growing up, I mean, I certainly had plenty of, of, of things I was thinking about. I mean, I think, you know, yeah. things change as you go through time. And a lot of young girls now can't imagine what the culture was like when, you know, women couldn't even say the word orgasm. Yeah, exactly. You know, and men also had this performance anxiety of like, how oh, do yeah. I pleasure a woman? It's difficult. She's complicated. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, you know, those <laughs> things. a lot of pressure. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure. And yeah. so, you know, you, you know, put that aside for a while and work on your own stuff. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like a lot of it is just getting getting more in tune with what's going on inside you rather than, um, or kind of drawing your attention kind of inward as opposed to, you know, all your attention being outward and, you know, externally facing. So. There's another thing that I've been working on a lot, which is ancestor medicine. And I'm not mm-hmm. alone in this. This is a big trend. I think this is important because there's so many of us in diaspora in the world for various yeah. reasons, including colonization. <laughs> We're yeah, all colonized. colonized. We've all dealt, dealt with being colonized. The truth is, it's very much the same as patriarchy. It really yeah. isn't separated from, you could just say patriarchy and you've got, you've got, you know, colonial ideas pretty much, right? Yeah. So you look at that and you say, okay, um, what are some of those, what is that programming and what is that damage? What did they take from us in order to control us and to exploit us, whoever they were, including people who were settlers, because they too had, you know, their power had been many times taken away from them. How did they think that they could do that to another person? Something Mm -hmm. was damaged in them. We all have to look at wherever we're really originally from. That's what I think. If you're from where you were originally from, great. Then look at that. You know, what happened to your people? Most indigenous people are already doing that. Like, they yeah. know, you know? Like, um, so they're working on it, but we're, we're working on it at a different level. And so are, you know, so was everybody. For me, it was about looking at how did my people come to the United States in the first place? I know on my, my mom's side, I had a lot more information, but I didn't have a lot on my dad's side. And how does that affect who I became? And how did mm-hmm. that affect my family and my extended family and how well they did in the world and how, you know, they're estranged from each other. Many of them are estranged. A lot of it was about religion, this sure. imp- imposed religion, you know, dominator religions is what I'm trying to say. I'm, I'm agnostic. So if you're yeah. not of the religion that you're brought up in and you're supposed to be, then you can be ousted from that group and you don't have access to that community. Yeah. Yeah, you know? very ostracizing. I mean, yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, I think I, I keep coming back to this idea that that the plants, you know, sacred plants, you know, cannabis and otherwise, 
really, you know, have this opportunity to, I guess, give yourself a little distance from yourself <laughs> or, or see yourself <laughs> with a little bit of perspective or, or with a little bit more context and, you know, just being a little bit more aware and a little bit more present to kind of the situation you're in and the things that are driving you and, and patterns and behaviors and maybe making some of the things that are very subconscious a little bit more conscious. And hopefully that helps you individually, but I think it also helps from a society point of view and just helping people feel a little more connected, I guess, you yes. know, a little bit more. We are, we are part of, we are part of something bigger, not, not in a necessarily in a spiritual powerful being sense, but just in a, in a collective, we are an ecosystem. We, are, um, we impact each other in all sorts of ways and, and we need to be aware of that and that our actions have these impacts. Yeah, I think the thing is that we are individuals and I think that's really important, but we also, you know, well, there's this, this idea of people, everybody and his brother or everybody and his sister, I should say, are healers. They just sort of declare mm-hmm. themselves to be healers. You know, the truth is you can help somebody, guide somebody to heal, but ultimately someone has to heal themselves when you're talking about this yeah. kind of work. You have to do the work. The plant is helpful, or the plants yeah. are helpful, and the guide is can be very, very helpful. In fact, the guide can be absolutely necessary. But you're still having to do the work yourself. You're the only one, okay? So yeah. you work on yourself, you improve yourself, and then maybe you help somebody else in your community improve themselves, and they help somebody else, and then suddenly your community or your subculture and then a greater subculture are getting healed, or, or at least getting somewhat healed. And then that spreads, Right? So that's sort of the idea, and that's the hope, is that the, all of humanity can heal to the point where we're not narcissistic anymore and destroying the entire ecosystem, because we yeah. think we're more important than everybody, all the other living beings on this planet, right? Yeah. So yeah. when you're talking about the ecosystem, you know, where do we fit in in the ecosystem? Yes, I think these sacred plants have this miraculous way of helping people see that in a newfound light, even if you're an environmentalist. You know, I, sure. I think... I think mushrooms in particular are great for me. Anytime I've worked with mushrooms, I have found this, I've had this extraordinary experience. It's experiential, okay, where I am all at once, I'm incredibly humbled. Like I'm, I know that I'm really very insignificant in terms Mm -hmm. of the greater universe. And yet I'm significant because every single being that's alive on this planet is significant. We all make up this ecosystem just like when I go outside in the woods and there are these little bugs on the ground running around. Those bugs are then, you know, helping to break down the leaves and the fungi is breaking down the earth and making it good for the trees. And then then the birds come and the birds are also pollinators and propagators. And then it just kind of people feed, you know, the animals and whatnot feed on each other. It's all part of this extraordinarily complicated and miraculous ecosystem we live on or live with, or live in, I should say, and are Mm -hmm. part of, because we are animals, we are nature. That is what, to me, the the mushrooms are are helpful for me, in that they say, and isn't that beautiful? You know, like, it's enough. It's enough to be just one little teeny-neeny factor in this extraordinary miracle. It feels beautiful and loved, and, and, you know, and and I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's what a lot of people will report. Yeah. Zoe, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? I've made it really easy. It's all Cosmic Sister. You know, at Cosmic Sister, look it up. You'll find it all. I mean, we're, we're mostly on Instagram these days, but uh, yeah. we're, we're in various places. I haven't been on Facebook as much, um, but yeah, Cosmic Sister, check it out and let me know if you heard this and if you liked it and 
Yeah, don't feel shy to uh, reach out. I mean, I'm here. Yeah. I love to hear people's experiences. I can only answer so many questions, but I just think it's fascinating how many people are interested in this. Oh, right yeah. Now. Well, it is. I think we're, we're at the beginning of things, right? It's I think it's just going to be more so. It's a massive global movement. Yeah. yeah. So I'll make sure that the links are in the notes here and some people can <laughs> click through and get that. Thank you so much for the, taking the time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Bruce. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.